0: Good morning, Valley Forge, King of Prussia and the greater Philadelphia area. This is We the People, the Constitution Matters, We're coming to you over at the Freedom Airways of WFYL. I'm your host, Pastor David Whitney, and I serve as the senior instructor at Institute on the Constitution. My scholars and gentlemen with me on this fine Friday morning, Phil Duffy, our constitutional instructor, and Mike Jeremita, who we say is our warrior in the courtroom. And by the way, Mike has a show just before ours at 7 a.m. on Friday mornings. Mike G. in the morning. The law matters. Well, we're in the midst of a series we're calling The Decent Dozen. These are well, good Decent Supreme Court cases. We've already done a series the Dirty Dozen, the kind of worst cases that we could find at the Supreme Court Render. But these are the decent cases, not perfect. They have flaws, as we'll see even today as, as we look at uh, Wisconsin v. Yoder. But there are valuable things in each of these cases that can help us understand the proper interpretation and the proper application of our United States Constitution. So, so Phil, this morning, why don't you bring us your thoughts on Wisconsin v. Yoder?
1: But well, Wikipedia has concise uh, summary of this case. We, uh, Wisconsin versus Jonas Yoder is the case in which the United States Supreme Court found That Amish children could not be placed under compulsory education past eighth grade. The parents' fundamental right to freedom of religion was determined to outweigh the state's interest in educating their children. The case is often cited as a basis for parents' right to educate their children outside of traditional private or public schools. The summary harbors an assumption, however that is devastating to Liberty. The state has an interest in education. Although the state involved in this case was the state of Wisconsin, the Supreme Court of the United States was attempting to generalize the concept. Terms like the state, government, and the general welfare are dangerous abstractions behind which special interests hide. In concrete terms, there is no such thing as the state. The state is a fraud, just like the wizard in The Wizard of Oz. If one recalls that story, It is not the human characters in the story who reveal the wizard to be an ordinary man, but Toto, Dorothy's dog. There seems to be a message in that which is comparable to the emperor's new clothes, in which the adults are all dazzled by the new clothes the emperor proclaims he is wearing. In that tale, it is a child who reveals the emperor is not wearing anything. Over the course of history, kings have been recognized as the state, Although he may have not said it, Francis Louis XIV was the ultimate characterization of I am the state. While there were earlier examples of representative government, it was not until Britain's former colonies threw off the mantle of the monarchical state, replacing it with representative government on a grand scale, that representative government arrived as a viable alternative to monarchy. But representative government is no panacea. It is as susceptible to corruption as a monarchy. The fundamental characteristic of representative government is that it only theoretically makes government the servant of the people. The state remains what it has always been, a mechanism for retaining the people in servitude while those controlling the government enrich special interests and themselves. Sheldon Richman confronts the myth that the people are the state in your money or your life, as he criticizes Columbia professor of political economy Edwin R.A. Seligman. The state is not the dispenser of useful public services, payment for which is to be based upon benefits received. The state is something else, an almost mythical part of us. That idea can be traced to the philosophy of Jean-Jacques Rousseau and others whose theory of the general will as embodied in the state has done so much to shape modern thinking about democracy. According to that view, collective decision-making through, polity, uh, through the polity represents the true will and common good of the people as a whole. The implication is that when people act individually in the market, they are selfish and and possibly detrimental to the common good. But when they act as members of the political community, they are mysteriously led to behave as faithful wards of the public interest. Richmond continues, Two political philosophers have summed up the idea of getting someone else to pay for your benefits. Frederick Bastiat, the 19th century political economist, wrote that the state is the great fiction by which everyone tries to live at everyone else's expense. H.L. Mencken, an equally astute observer, wrote in the 20th century that government is a broker in pillage, and every election is a sort of advance auction sale of stolen goods. Before we look at the Wisconsin versus Yoder case background in greater detail, and examine the court's opinion. Let's delve further into Wikipedia's summary of this case. The summary indicates that Amish children could not be placed under compulsory education past 8th grade. The parents' fundamental right to freedom of religion was determined to outweigh the state's interest in educating their children. Granted that the scope of the Supreme Court's opinion was the parties in the case, yet one cannot deny that the opinion could influence similar cases. There are a number of things that appear to be wrong with the Wikipedia summary, and perhaps with the court's opinion, but we will examine that later. Can Amish children up to eighth grade be placed under compulsory education by their state government? What are the implications for homeschool students and their families? Can the opinion be logically extended to all students and their families, to Protestant and Catholic families, and even to agnostic and atheist families? Finally, what is the state's real interest in the education of children? Remember that the state is an abstraction behind which a class of people govern. They make individual decisions that could be considered even more selfish than those buyers and sellers in the free market. The governing class does have a selfish interest in a public education that would assure recipients would be more productive and income-earning than their parents because That is the way of assuring tax revenues uh, required to sustain and expand government would be available in the future. However, it is not obvious that the promoters of government-controlled education are looking that far ahead. The governing class has an even greater incentive to control the content of so-called education. It needs to propagandize young people in order to assure that the governing class remains in power. Let's take a look at the background of the case. Wikipedia goes into greater detail concerning the case's background. Three Amish students from three different families stopped attending the New Glarus High School in New Glarus, Wisconsin, school district at the end of the eighth grade because of their parents' religious beliefs. The three families were represented by Jonas Yoder, one of the fathers involved in the case, when the case went to trial. They were convicted in the Green County Court. Each defendant was fined the nominal sum of $5. Thereafter, the Wisconsin Supreme Court found in Yoder's favor. Thereupon, Wisconsin appealed that ruling in the U.S. Supreme Court. Wikipedia mentions the difficulty of the Amish encounter seeking equal justice in the current system and what was done in this case to overcome that challenge. The Amish did not believe in going to court to settle disputes, but instead followed the biblical command to turn the other cheek. Thus, the Amish are at a disadvantage when it comes to defending themselves in courts or before legislative committees. However, a Lutheran minister, Reverend William C. Lindholm, took an interest in Amish legal difficulties from a religious freedom perspective and founded the National Committee for Amish Religious Freedom, partly as a result of this case, and then provided them with legal counsel. Under Amish church standards, higher education was deemed not only uh, unnecessary for their simple way of life, but also endangering to their salvation. These men appealed for exemption from compulsory education on the basis of these religious convictions. They sincerely held to the belief that the values their children would learn at home would surpass the worldly knowledge taught in school. It is truly admirable that Reverend Lindholm would make the effort to assure that the Amish had their day in court. Let's take a look at the legal arguments and the uh, court opinion. Cornell's Information Institute frames the case narrowly as one involving the First Amendment's establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof clause. One of the arguments against compulsory high school education offered by the defendants was High school tends to emphasize intellectual and scientific accomplishments, competitiveness, worldly success, and social life with other students. Amish society emphasizes informal learning through doing, a life of goodness rather than a life of uh, of intellect wisdom rather than technical knowledge, community welfare rather than competition, and separation from rather than integration with contemporary world society. That the argument was narrow is explained further in the case syllabus. The Amish do not object to elementary education through the first eight grades as a general proposition because they agree that their children must have basic skills in the three R's in order to read the Bible, to be good farmers and citizens, and to be able to deal with non-Amish people when necessary in the course of daily affairs. They, re- they view such basic education as acceptable because it does not significantly expose their children to worldly or interfere with their development in the Amish community during the crucial adolescent period. While Amish accept compulsory elementary education generally, wherever possible, they have established their own elementary schools in many respects, like the small local schools of the past. In the Amish belief, higher learning tends to develop values they reject as influences that alienate man from God. The counter argument by the state of Wisconsin was providing public schools uh, ranks as the very apex of the function of the state. A conflict arises between a state's legitimate powers and the right of the parents to educate their children according to religious belief. The syllabus continues, thus a state's interest in universal education, however highly we rank it. It is not totally free from a balancing process when it impinges on fundamental rights and interests, such as those specifically protected by the Free Exercise Clause of the First Amendment and the traditional interests of the parents with respect to the religious upbringing of their children, so long as they, in the words of Pierce, prepare them for additional obligations. There's a proviso in the syllabus, however, a way of life, however virtuous and admirable, may not be interposed as a barrier to reasonable state regulation of education if it is based on purely secular considerations. To have the protection of the religion clauses, the claims, claims must be rooted in religious belief. Furthermore, nor can this case be disposed of on the grounds that Wisconsin's requirement for school attendance to age 16 applies uniformly to all citizens of the state, And does not on its face discriminate against religions or a particular religion or that it is motivated by legitimate secular concerns. In a six to one opinion authored by Chief Justice Warren Berger, the court concluded, for the reasons stated we hold with the the Supreme Court of Wisconsin, that the first and 14th amendments prevent the state from compelling respondents to cause their children to attend formal high school to age 16. Now, what are the case implications? It would be difficult to argue that justice was not served in this case, and thus it merits uh, classification as a decent case. Its arguments by the respondents assume the concept of incorporation of the 14th Amendment's due process clause because the First Amendment is directed to uh, to Congress alone and not to state governments. This is hocus pocus that should not be tolerated because it essentially gives judges the power to include or exclude a case from hearing based upon their personal judgments. there's little question that the people believe that the Bill of Rights amendment instead of through incorporation of the 14th Amendment when the judges allow that. The solution is to amend the Constitution appropriately. Recall the questions raised earlier about the scope of the, the opinion. Upon reflection, we have to admit that the opinion of the court was very narrow. It gave an exemption to two religious communities members of the Old Order of Amish Religion, and the conservative Amish Mennonite Church. The case did not challenge the constitutionality of the state of Wisconsin requirement that Amish children attend public elementary schools. There's nothing in the court's opinion that explicitly supports an exemption for other religious communities, nor does it claim that homeschoolers are exempted from public school attendance. Each state may impose its own laws on homeschoolers. This is not to argue for broad opinions emerging from the Supreme Court of the United States. To the contrary, narrow decisions are to be preferred to broad. We look to the legislative branch of government to establish the broad rules. We should expect the Supreme Court to be consistent, however. In practice, Roe v. Wade was national in its scope. On the other hand, we should expect that the Supreme Court would consider all of the constitutional law that applied to a case— And not provisions the Constitution while ignoring other applicable constitutional law, as Chief Justice John Roberts did in National Federation of Independent Business versus Sebelius concerning the Affordable Care Act. Although the right parties won in uh, Wisconsin versus Yoder, the reasoning is shallow. Yes, Yoder obviously should have been granted the exemption, but what other groups should have been granted an exemption as well? And why shouldn't individuals be granted exemptions? Isn't that the essence of the homeschooling movement? Did we learn anything about the heavy hand of government and education from Wisconsin versus Yoder? Apparently not, because five years later, the unconstitutional United States Department of Education was created during the Carter administration. In the 1990s, a movement began in the US to establish national educational standards for students across the country. Since 2010, 41 states and the District of Columbia have been members of the Common Core State Standards Initiative. According to a number of measures, education quality has deteriorated, and many parents are concerned that both K-12 and higher education have become socialist boot camps that put too much effort into propaganda and not enough into the development of critical thinking skills. So what is the future of education? <clears throat> A discussion of Wisconsin v. Yoder is not the place to get into a full uh, examination of the dangers of government-controlled education. Yet one can hardly ignore how we have reached this point as a nation in our handling of education and the alternatives ahead of us. We seem to have drifted away from the idea of government facilitating education, as was the case with the Northwest Ordinance, to moving toward total top-down control under programs like Common Core. At the same time, the costs of education have spiraled out of control, even beyond those in healthcare. Ironically, information technology offers the opportunity to eliminate government control of education, drive down its cost, and significantly improve its quality. But that involves moving away from the top-down government control of education with its inherent tendency to propagandize and serve special interests that are politically connected.
0: Oh, thank you, Phil. Excellent. Uh, Bastiat, in, in particular, <laughs> the government is legalized plunder, everybody trying to live at the, uh, the the expense of everybody else. So if you can get your hands into the public pot ahead of your neighbor, then, you know, you can benefit <laughs> and he's going to lose out. But this is a really good case in, in, in both positive and negative. We want to look at both of those, because obviously the outcome was correct as far as it went. And I think you rightly point out that uh, there's a bigger question that the case does not deal with because it's narrowly, you know, just examining uh, the the issue of Yoder and his fellow Amish regarding uh, beyond eighth eighth grade education. But the bigger question, as you point out, is, wait a minute, when did government grab this power of education and does it belong to them and not to the parent? Anyway, that's a that's a huge philosophical question. And by the way, I, I need to give full disclosure, full disclosure. I, as a father of three children, not one of my children ever attended any public school. And therefore, we homeschooled and we sent them to Christian private school, which means we paid for their education twice Twice, that's right. We paid for the good homeschooling, good Christian private school, and we paid the taxes to support the gargantuan and, as you point out, very ineffective public system. And, in fact, I uh, spoke before the county legislature called county council in our county and and objected to that and my oldest daughter also objected to that it's like really not fair for parents to have to pay twice for the education of their children because whenever there's a monopoly and we know this is true in every area of business and it's certainly true in education as well whenever there's a monopoly we know the product is overpriced rightly as you point out phil it's a (laughs) the expense of education just gone through the roof particularly college you know just outrageous but a monopoly means you have a very expensive product and it's a shoddy product product because after all what's the motivation of the person uh, selling that product to you they know you're forced to buy it and they could do a shoddy job with it well the Yoder uh, – uh, Wisconsin v. Yoder is a good good case because they did come to the right conclusion, but it really did not go far enough because it was, as, as you rightly point out, Phil, a narrowly uh, ruled case, and, and it rightly so, so should be. But the problem with many Supreme Court cases – and this is an illustration of that when the Supreme Court issues an opinion about a particular case, everybody does not simply interpret it as, okay, that just deals with Yoder and his fellow Amish there in Wisconsin and really relates to nobody else at all. Well, it should just relate to Yoder and his his fellow Amishmen and, and their situation. But the history of the Wisconsin v. Yoder case tells us otherwise. In fact, This case has come to produce what the Supreme Court these days calls the Yoder test. Although obviously right now that test has has been severely challenged, not sure if it is dead or if it's been overturned. But there's three prongs. To the Supreme Court Yoder test. And the first prong is this. Does the individual have a sincere religious belief? And we'll come back to that in a moment because it's a question how in the world do you determine if an individual has a sincere religious belief? Second prong of the Yoder test, and, and this is, by the way, this has been applied to all kinds of cases that come before the Supreme Court. Second prong is this. Does government action impose substantial burden upon the exercise of that religious belief? Which is really the question in in the Yoder case, you know, is forcing these kids uh, against their parents' religious beliefs and their religious beliefs, uh, uh, you know, high school, middle school, and high school in the secular uh, schools. Is that uh, imposing a substantial burden upon their exercise of their religious belief? So second prong. Third prong. Does government have a compelling interest that cannot be achieved by less restrictive means? These three tests are known, these three prongs, excuse me, are known as the Yoder test. And the first one is really problematic because how and who determines whether an individual has a sincere religious belief? Are we going to take Mr. Yoder, put him up on the stand and examine him and question him and determine if his religious belief that he claims, he claims he believes these things, he claims that, uh, you know, as, as you well lined out there, Phil, that, you know, it's going to be disadvantageous to uh, the religious belief of his children to be forced to go to middle school and high school, and they would be better uh, serving in their family structure and the way their family is going to educate them, that their religious beliefs, how can somebody determine if Mr. Yoder had a sincere religious belief? Clearly, (laughs) that's outside the purview of any government authority who can who can peer into the heart of another individual and determine if what they say their religious belief is, is actually a sincere religious belief. An individual's thoughts, they're not subject to government inspection and government regulation in spite of the fact that today our way out of control government wants to create these things called hate crimes whereby they determine they can peer into your soul and determine you committed this crime with hatred and animus. Wait a minute. I don't know about you, but if somebody robbed me or somebody broke into my house or stole my car, you know, they hate me. They hate me for doing that. And, of course, we know that what the hate crimes are really about is, uh, you know, racism. Certain races are going to be targeted, saying that they committed this crime because they have a racial animus against somebody else. Wait a minute. That's never the job of government. That's government trying to be God. Government claiming it can look into the hearts of human beings and determine their exact motive for doing what they are doing. And, uh, therefore, this part of the Yoder test, I think, is foolish. But, sadly to say... It has been applied repeatedly. Does the individual have a sincere religious belief? And so the government tries to look into the individual and say, you know, we we think it is sincere. Or no, no, we don't think you have a sincere religious belief. And therefore, you know, you don't pass the Yoder test and your God-given right to religious freedom won't be protected because we don't think you're actually sincere. Now, that second test, does the government action impose substantial burden? Well, I think every time the government interferes with anyone's exercise of their religious belief, where that religious belief is not in violation of the laws of nature, nature's God, and I have to put that qualification in because there are some religions that violate the laws of nature, nature's God, and injure some other person in their property or their person or their God-given rights as part of their so-called religion. You say, what? The world? Who would do something like that? Well, there are groups, Satanist groups, that believe human sacrifice is required by their quote-unquote religion. And so human sacrifice is what they're engaged in. In fact, they uh, claim that, you know, abortion. That's right. Some religious... Wicked Satanists claim that abortion is part of their sacrament, and therefore to outlaw abortion would be to uh, render their religion and and their sincere religious belief you'd be infringing upon it. So it always has to be measured, as our founder said, by the laws of nature and nature's God. Otherwise, we just have anarchy. We have chaos. We have uh, moral insanity. So the third test of the Yoder, does government have a compelling interest that cannot be achieved by less restrictive means? And I love the phrase there from the uh, state of Wisconsin Supreme Court that providing public school ranks as the very apex of the function of a state. Oh, wait a minute. Wait a minute. Hold on. Hold the press. That's exactly the opposite philosophy of government from the founders of our country, which clearly declared. In the Declaration of Independence, the only purpose of human civil government is to protect your God-given rights, nothing else. And I would argue that one of those God-given rights was the education of the children by their own parents and what their parents choose. In other words, educational liberty... Founders viewed as one of the God-given rights of the people in our country. And I can argue that because the history, and many people don't know this, the history of public education is there was no public education. There was no compulsory attendance laws. There was no public financing forced upon the taxpayers of education whatsoever in America before beginning in about the 1830s where the people who proposed this new idea, it was a brand new idea to have public education. Up to that time, it was all voluntary. It was all independent. Parents were in charge of whether they homeschooled or whether they hired a tutor or sent them to a private school. That was the job of the parents to make that decision because that's what religious liberty required, that parents could make that choice. And that's why uh, Yoder's a decent case, but not an excellent case, because it were an excellent case, it would attack the whole idea that there's any compulsory education laws required at all in any state of the union, that that's an attack upon the parents' rights to educate uh, their own children. And so when we look at the history of public education, it's fascinating to see the goals expressed by those who actually started the public education movement, Arrestus Bronson uh, and others, uh, 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 Horace Mann and so forth. You can read the, all of those. And by the way, if you're interested, uh, I've produced a DVD called The History of Education in America. If you want to get that DVD, go to the website, theamericanview.com, theamericanview.com. Just search for The History of Education in America. I uh, all, all, don't have time to look at all those details now, but if you're interested. But they said... That is the founders of the public school movement said their goal was twofold, to make America a socialist nation. Wow. Think of that. 1830s or more than 150 years, 180 years at this point, beyond that point. And they have been wildly successful. We look at the public school system and say it's an abject failure. The kids can't read. The kids can't write. The kids can't do arithmetic. It's a failure. No, no, no. We don't understand. It had nothing to do about the three R's, it really educating and and the reason for turning to public education was to bring America into a socialist nation and the second goal was linked to that first goal because they realized America could never be made into a socialist nation until they de-Christianized America. That's right, took Christianity out of America, and they knew they could do that by grabbing generation after generation after generation of children, and they expressly said that they were going to take them away from the values of their parents. The public education was designed to see that the children believe something very different from their parents. In other words, it was a religious movement. Yeah, these people were atheistic secular humanism, but that is actually a religion. These people were religious that started the public education movement. The whole thing was religious from the very beginning. In fact, they talked about the common school by which we mean the public salvation of the world. They had their own anti-Christian salvation, rejecting Christianity and embracing uh, socialism. So while Yoder did a good thing for those involved in that specific case, One way it did not go far enough in actually saying, wait a minute, public monopoly of education is wrong. It's a violation of the Constitution. Our founders never envisioned that people would be forced to pay taxes to pay for someone else's education. That's freedom. And we should return to the freedom of our founders. And educational freedom would be one of those freedoms where we abolish all public schools. Don't defund the police. Defund the public schools. Or or we could put it this way. If you want to send your kids to those institutions, fine. You pay entirely. No taxpayer money goes to that institution. If you want your kids there, great, fine, do it. But if you don't watch kids there, you don't have to pay one stinking red cent for that wicked institution. By the way, just look at today what's happening. Yikes. Ah, kids are being indoctrinated to question whether they're a boy or a girl, question what the creator made them to be. And, you know, in uh, in absence of their parents so their parents may not even know that the child has decided to change his gender and wear different clothes and change his name and actually go get some butcher that they call a surgery, a transgender surgery, without the parents knowing at all. And so we see the evil design of the founders of the public education system coming to full, full fruition in our day. So the Yoder test, of course, uh, is being challenged now, and, and in some ways it's uh, it's been wounded. Maybe it's, uh, it, it's headed towards the grave, not sure. Uh, but uh, we face a situation where today, I believe, Americans ought to rise up and say, we are finished with the public education system. Let's defund the schools. And uh, Yoder doesn't go as far as it could have done to accomplish uh, that goal. Michael, uh, what, what thoughts do you have on uh, Wisconsin v. Yoder?
2: Thanks, Pastor Whitney. I think you both explained the facts of the case and the holding and opinion very adequately. So what I want to do is I want to zoom out a little bit and take a look at some of the court's concerns and then how some of this case has been addressed in the aftermath because it is a bit of a mess, to be honest with you. With the case itself, we see a struggle in the court trying to walk what they call the tightrope of neither restricting nor encouraging religion. Now... To put this first and foremost, I can see why people would be frustrated when straying from the text of the Constitution ultimately leads to a series of unworkable tests invented by the court, because this is how you wind up with these messes. But the concern of the court was whether carving out specific exceptions for religious groups could be construed as encouraging religion or affording specific benefits for religious practice, preferential treatment, so to speak. Because as Phil mentioned, This excludes an individual when their objection isn't tied to religious beliefs. At the same time, if the restrictions are imposed in such a way that they prevent the free exercise of religion, that's clearly a no-go. Now, when Pastor Whitney spoke about the test and whether it's still alive, a notation on the Yoder case provided by Westlaw says that the case itself was, quote, recognized as overruled by a case called Ruiz Diaz versus United States out of the Ninth Circuit. Didn't say that it was overruled. It says recognized as overruled by this Ninth Circuit case. So I went to the case itself. And what that case said was, quote, the Supreme Court in Employment Division versus Smith overruled Sherbert and Yoder. And we held in Navajo Nation that by passing RFRA, Congress intended to restore those principles and prevent such burdens on religious exercise in the future. So I went to Employment Division v. Smith to take a look at how they allegedly overruled Yoder, and I'm not so sure it really goes that far. First of all, the case is recognized as superseded by statute. And second of all, Yoder is really only discussed in the concurring opinion. And what they said was, quote, indeed in yoder, we expressly rejected the interpretation the court now adopts. Our decisions have rejected the idea that religiously grounded conduct is always outside the protection of the free exercise clause. It is true that activities of individuals even when religiously based are often subject to regulation by the states in their exercise of their undoubted power to promote health, safety, and general welfare or the federal government in the exercise of its delegated powers. But to agree that religiously grounded conduct must often be subject to the broad police power of the state is not to deny that there are areas of conduct protected by the Free Exercise Clause of the First Amendment, and thus beyond the power of the state to control, even under regulations of general applicability. A regulation neutral on its face may, in its application nonetheless, Offend the constitutional requirement for government neutrality if it unduly burdens the free exercise of religion. And quote the the concurring opinion goes on to say quote the court endeavors to escape from our decisions in Cantwell and Yoder by labeling them hybrid decisions, but there is no denying that both cases expressly relied on the free exercise clause, and that we have consistently regarded those cases as part of the mainstream of our free exercise jurisprudence. Moreover, in each of the other cases cited by the court to support its categorical rule, we rejected the particular constitutional claims before us only after carefully weighing the competing interests. End quote. Now Pastor Whitney talked a little bit about how these cases should only apply to the parties themselves. We do see that in certain instances, although not in criminal cases like uh, one of them that we're discussing today. It is also important to keep in mind that the cases that supposedly overrule or recognize the overruling of Yoder are not the same kind of case. And these cases had to do with unemployment and things of that nature. But when we see cases that only impact the parties, we see this through what are called civil as applied challenges. And there's uh, an appeal going on in the Third Circuit right now. They just held oral arguments last week, which is a Second Amendment as applied challenge with these cases is somebody who is prohibited from possessing firearms, for example, based upon a law will bring a lawsuit stating that the law is unconstitutional as applied to them. So a broad law that prohibits, let's say, folks who have been convicted of a misdemeanor with a max possible sentence exceeding two years can be challenged by somebody in that context if they make the case that the law is overbroad and it's unconstitutional as applied to them in their circumstance. We've seen these kinds of cases succeed in the past with a number of different contexts. Uh, the case that I presently have before the Third Circuit involves a conviction for bookmaking in the 1990s and our argument that this law as applied to our client is unconstitutional. And if we were to succeed, it wouldn't mean that everybody who was convicted of bookmaking – can now possess firearms. It just means that our particular client is held to be able to possess firearms because the the prohibition is unconstitutional as applied to him. Now, practically speaking, it still does have an impact on other cases because you better believe that if there's somebody else out there with a bookmaking conviction and they bring their own as applied challenge, they're going to be citing the court's opinion in my case, they'll be saying, well, if the court ruled that way in this case, my case is the same. Why should they rule any differently? So those are the kinds of cases where the holdings really only specifically affect the parties that are involved. We do see that today. We just don't see that in these other contexts when it comes to the Supreme Court.
0: Mm, thank you, Mike. And that, that that's helpful clarification because it's kind of a mystery to me is how – okay, when the Supreme Court issues an opinion, it doesn't apply just to those people who came into court. In this case, Yoder uh, v. the state of Wisconsin, but uh, applies to others. Well, I guess if there's uh, the idea of precedence that, okay, well, uh, the court has given this ruling, and if there's a similar fact pattern of another set of people coming uh, before the court, that uh, the ruling will will stay the same. So there is, there is that element. But uh, I guess my question with all of this is, uh, how can... Uh, The founding father's vision for a limited government, in this case, limited federal government, they weren't saying what the state governments could or could not do, but a limited federal government then involved the court entering into a a decision-making process as to now, what the states here are doing when there's no federal question at hand. In other words, if there was a federal question because there's some element in Article One, Section 8, one of the you know 17 things listed there, okay, let's say post offices was a, a example that's simple. Okay, post offices have, uh, there's a federal question, and so if you're gonna wrestle with an issue, yes, this would involve the Supreme Court, but education is nowhere in any part of the United States Constitution, nor the Bill of Rights, nor any of the amendments uh, to the Constitution beyond the Bill of Rights. So it always puzzles me that, you know, kind of the federal government believes it can get its nose into everybody's business on any issue at all uh, just because, well, hey, it's the federal government that figures it can. In other words, the federal government's not going to follow the kind of restrictions that our founders envision, that there's few delegated, limited, enumerated powers, as James Madison said in, in, in Federalist 45. And that's all the federal government has has the uh, the the jurisdiction to deal with
2: i will say in terms of the courts issuing their rulings their holdings and it applying to others it's not as easy as it sounds sometimes and uh, we know this on the second amendment side uh, through uh, unsavory experiences, unfortunately. So, for example, with the opinion that was handed down in uh, New York State Rifle and Pistol Association Mm -hmm. versus Bruin, where they struck down New York State's justifiable need requirement, um, the idea was, okay. now places like New Jersey, places like Maryland that previously had this, they can no longer include this because clearly the Supreme Court has deemed it unconstitutional. But what we see is a practical matter is they say, okay, well, ours is different for reasons X, Y, and Z, and what happens is you end up in court anyhow.
0: <laughs> mm-hmm. now, Mike, but but in that case, go ahead. Yeah. Go ahead, Pastor uh,
1: yeah, David.
0: Oh, I was going to say, in that case, there's clearly a federal question, because we're talking about Second Amendment issues, so there's something in the Constitution that that should be grappled with because the militia, the, the Constitution clearly says the militia is absolutely essential to the existence of a free state, and the militia is spoken of five times in our Constitution, so there's a federal question where I see with the education, it's like, well, not that I'm saying that they didn't come to the right conclusion with Yoder, but it's like, this whole issue of where's the limit on the powers of the federal government. That, that's what I'm wrestling with. But go ahead, Phil.
1: Okay, uh, Mike, I, I had a question. Perhaps I misunderstood this, but did I hear you say that the Ninth Federal Circuit Court had basically degraded the uh, the Yoder uh, opinion of the uh, Supreme Court? And if so, my
2: question then would be, since when does a subordinate court overrule a superior court? Yeah, that's not exactly what it is. A little more of a mess than that. So what happened was the Ninth Circuit uh, basically, in, in its opinion, said that the Supreme Court had previously overruled Yoder when the Supreme Court didn't expressly do so in the case that they cited, which is what led me on well, that goose chase from that notation about the Ninth Circuit saying, yes, it was overruled in this case, going back to the case that they cited and finding all the problems with that particular case. So I don't well, think it's as clear as cut as the Ninth Circuit uh, made it seem. OK, now I understand. Yes.
0: And I guess that Ninth Circuit is, uh, you know, one of the mm, I guess most overruled <laughs> circuit, <laughs> uh, federal circuit, because of its bad decision making again and again and again, right?
2: Yeah, it's it's almost funny how predictable it can be, because if you see a decision get made in the Ninth Circuit with a panel, a three judge panel that seems favorable for liberty, you know that they're going to come back on bonk with everybody on that panel, and it's going to go the other way. And then many times the Supreme Court overrules that. So it's a it's a lengthy back and forth that we've seen when the Ninth Circus involved.
0: Mm. Uh, Pastor David, the you, debate, uh, go ahead. Yeah, uh, go ahead with yours yours first. I was going to say the, the the debate the debate I think we ought to have as a whole country is that. Having a monopoly on education, is that a good idea at all? Because we know monopolies always produce a very expensive product that's shoddy. And we clearly have a shoddy product in terms of public education. And by the way, we can measure this because there is a test every three years done internationally on science and technology and mathematics. Things that can be measured regardless of what culture or language, so forth. Anyway, of the developed nations, the United States is always dead last. Dead last in the, on that test and yet we spend more money per capita for students in the United States than any other nation on earth, and we get the worst product. So clearly the monopoly is a failure. So I think it's time to consider something else. Uh, But go ahead, Phil.
1: Well, I I think your point about monopoly is, is very significant but we need to go even further beyond that the the potential for propagandizing uh using the the government itself and in this case the federal government uh, through things like common core uh using the government itself to propagandize its uh, uh in, in such a way that that the people are forced to to really accept uh just as they did in 1984 uh orwell's 1984 uh to accept what the government thinking and thinking.
0: Yeah, uh, talk about, uh, well, obviously, it, it, the term Orwellian very aptly fits, but uh, and your point that you made in, in your comments that uh, the government has a self-interest in doing this because they want compliant servants who will produce a lot of tax revenue for the government. So in a sense, it's like if you think of what how cancer develops, Cancer cells are cells that are reproduced within the body that exist not to function as they were designed by the creator God to to function. So liver cells not doing the job of a liver cell, but only existing for their own self-preservation and their own growth. And so they're sucking out. The resources from the body for their own growth. And ultimately, of course, uh, you'll allow that cancer to grow large enough that it'll kill uh, the, the person who's the host. But the cancer cells exist for their own well being. And we see that is what happens with our government, both federal and state level. It seems that most government uh, functionaries are existing to expand their power, expand uh, their revenue, which means more taxes are needed, uh, and basically. Uh, not for the good of the people, not our founders' vision that government only exists to protect the God-given rights. And that's the problem with the education that I see. You've gone beyond what our founders described as the circle within which good civil government functions. It functions to protect your God-given rights. It doesn't function to educate anyone's children. Rather, it functions as to protect the God-given rights of the parents, and they can choose how to educate their children. Same kind of thing with healthcare. Uh, obviously, healthcare is not in our federal constitution at all, but the idea that the government exists to become the healthcare agency and and the nanny state that takes care of everyone's health, that's the opposite of our founders' view. Their view was, no, no, no. The government exists to protect your God-given right so that you can take care of your own health care and make your own health care decisions rather than having a government nanny decide what's best for you and whether you've got to you know take this shot or that shot. you know those things are best best left to the individuals to make that and the purpose of civil government is to protect your god-given rights so you can make the best individual decisions regarding your own
2: health I was thinking about what you gentlemen were talking about in terms of uh, there being a monopoly. I don't know that it's quite a monopoly, but as I think about it, it may in fact be worse than a monopoly. And here's why. Because it's not that they are the only game in town, right? You have alternatives. You can, like Pastor Whitney said, when he put his kids through uh, excellent private school as well as homeschooling. So there there are, in fact, alternatives. But think of, in a different context, uh, companies that have been accused of having a monopoly. I know that, for one, the ultimate fighting championship, the UFC, has been accused of having an illegal monopoly. So imagine that uh, if... The UFC were in existence and you had other promotions that were around, but you still had to buy all of the UFC's pay-per-views, even if you wanted to buy the other organization's pay-per-views, because <laughs> that's exactly what's going on. You Like Pastor Whitney said, you got to pay both of them, even if you do have the alternatives. In some sense, a monopoly would be better because they'd be afraid to lose it. They'd say, OK, we better step our game up or otherwise somebody else is going to come around and, and make some kind of alternative and we might be out of business business.
0: <laughs> yeah. Can you, can you imagine what would happen to the public education system if it actually had to function in a competitive education market where it had to get students and students would choose, or the parents would choose to send their students there compared to all the alternatives. And we know what they spend per capita per student is as astronomical compared to even what a, a private school costs, There's far greater spending going on there. And if they had to compete Market, we know it would fail. And Phil, you made an important point that there's a politically connected uh, special interest in this. And that's always the case with a monopoly. And the special interest here is clearly the teachers' unions. Because the teachers' unions fight, and they've got enormous amount of money, millions and millions of dollars in their war chest to fight any change to this system. And obviously, they also fight against any homeschooling. I think there in Pennsylvania, the um, the rule is if you're going to homeschool your children, you have to get a teacher's degree, or else it's illegal for you to homeschool your own children. Ridiculous. But so the, the monopoly power is connected with the teachers' union. And that's how I think they, they stay uh, in force, because most of the politicians, <laughs> they never want to cross the teacher's union because they know that the amount of money that the teacher's union could pour into any candidate that would oppose to them would mean they'd lose their seat in the, in the legislative branch.
1: Well, I, I think that that is true in certain states, but it's probably not true in Pennsylvania, which which tends to be uh, on the positive side in terms of tolerance of, of homeschooling. Uh, I certainly would hope so because uh, I've taught in, in homeschooling uh, co-ops, so and Wait a second. I hear a knock at the door. I'm, I'm sorry. Strike that last comment, please.
0: <laughs> the, the NEA is coming after you. <laughs> How dare you teach without a degree from their approved educational system?
1: Huh? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> mm. Well, you know, all of this, uh, I think, raises a question in my mind, and that is, what is the proper conduct for a judge? And it seems to me that, that there are two things. In particular. One is the assessment of the facts, and I'll grant you that uh, uh, the judges don't have the the, uh, uh, power to assess the facts. They've been assessed by a lower court. Uh, The second is uh, have the proper procedures, uh, so-called due process been followed. Now, beyond that, once you get into uh, judges making decisions uh, which have to be very subjective and personal, about words such as sincere and significant. You are in a rat's nest. I mean, think of the power that that gives to a judge over individual human behavior. What we want to do is to find ways to eliminate Uh, Judges making those uh, determinations and let them focus on the facts and how the facts are applied in a particular case and whether or not the correct procedures have been followed.
0: But isn't that always a problem? them when it comes to the Supreme Court that uh, they are thinking of themselves, actually some of them have declared that they're an ongoing constitutional convention. the idea that you know they can rewrite the Constitution any way they please because after all, they're the Supreme Court. so supreme over their, over the other branches is how they've falsely interpreted uh, that term. But the idea that they have in their mind is when they issue an opinion, then everybody across the country has to uh, follow suit. That's why the Yoder test came into existence once in 72, 1972, was that, uh, that was used again and again and again. Um, and so I think it's a problem, not just in the mind of the justices, but sadly also in the mind of most Americans. They view when the Supreme Court has ruled, then that is the law of the land. That's why for many years, Roe v. Wade was called the law of the land. It's like, really, it's a law? Isn't it true that the legislative branch alone makes law? And judges don't make how can how can the Supreme Court make a law? Obviously, they, they cannot. But in the mind of far too many Americans, uh, the Supreme Court has this enormous power that is never granted to them by the actual text of our U.S. Constitution, in, in my understanding. yeah, you
1: know, uh, I'd like to go back to this uh, the comment that was made up earlier by uh, Horace Mann. Uh, that's yeah. a very, very interesting story. And yes, you're you're right. It was the 1830s, I believe. And Horace Mann was the uh, um, the head of the state uh, Department of Education in Massachusetts. And one of the things that they were concerned about is that Massachusetts had a a large number of Catholics that were. Um, coming into the state from lands like Italy and and, uh, Poland and so forth, which were Catholic-based lands. And they were really terrified over the fact that these people were coming in and, and establishing their own schools. They were teaching their own values and so forth. And uh, that had to be stopped. And so that's where public education, uh, and I should say that's where uh, enforced, uh, coerced public education really comes from. Uh, I believe Horace Mann was the first to really establish that that foundation. And that is very different from what we see in, county, uh, in the uh, – Uh, The Northwest Ordinance, if you look very closely at the Northwest Ordinance, the government facilitates education by establishing a certain amount of space where schools can be created, but does not go much beyond that. It says nothing about mandatory attendance and all of the rest of that. You know, it is uh, the difference between government facilitating and government uh, coercing education.
0: Uh, Amen. You know, you can encourage something without actually funding it, uh, you know, and financing it or forcing people to participate in it, you can encourage it in a lot of different ways. And I think you're right. The Northwest Ordinance Model was the best model to follow. But obviously, that was way back at, what, uh, 90, uh, 91, 92. So it was uh, early on. By that time of 1830, as the socialists began to look at what uh, America was becoming, they realized, "Ooh, here's an opportunity to actually have an impact in an enormous section of the world that ultimately would be an impact across the world itself." So the socialist mindset, I think, uh, influenced strongly what they doing. And if we understand that socialist mindset, it really can be summarized in this phrase: "Civil government is God." You know, they're atheists. They Reject the whole idea that there's a being beyond our human existence. No, for them, the civil government is God because it's the most powerful thing on earth. And that led, obviously, to manifestations like the Nazi regime and so on and and communism, uh, which which our founders repelled and rejected. Well, I
1: believe the Articles of Confederation, uh, I I know that they were actually— uh, implemented and, and they were legislated certainly under the Articles of Confederation, not under the uh, the Constitution. Um, so that would be about uh, 1787 I believe. So it's very early in our, our nation's history before we go to the big government model which uh, basically the Constitution has facilitated.
0: Mm-hmm. Yes. And so we can return if we change the minds of people and the thinking of people to say there's a better way and particularly in terms of education but but if we go back to even the constitutional standard, it's not the federal government's job to do anything about constitution, uh, education at all. That should be left up to the people and not even to the states if we truly understand liberty. So why don't we try for educational liberty instead of educational tyranny? This is We the People, the Constitution Matters, coming to you over the free airwaves of WFYL. We invite you to join us Friday mornings at 8 a.m. Also, you can check out our podcast because all of these shows are podcasts, and you'll find those uh, podcasts at 1180wfyl.com. Click on podcast. We're right down at the very bottom of the list. We the People, the Constitution Matters. We invite you to study and prepare and spread the word so we can restore our constitutional republic.